0: Hi, and welcome to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, highlighting artists, teachers, authors, and philanthropists of the regenerative movement. People who are committed to and who showcase planetary leadership. My name is Julian Guderley, and in today's episode, I'm hosting an interview with Tammy Castleman. Tammy is a pioneer and thought leader on impact investing. She's a Harvard-trained strategist and former Bain consultant working at the intersection of the highest levels of corporate, government, entrepreneurial, and investor communities, and as a senior strategy advisor for multiple global SDG and sustainability initiatives. Also, Tammy serves on the steering committee for the Nexus Impact Investing Working Group and is worldwide president of Harvard Alumni in Impact and chairs Opal's family office Impacting, Impact Investing Forum. So with these words, I'm really excited for a conversation about impact investing in the current times. Welcome, Tammy.
1: Thank you. Good to be here. Hear here from a distance. I guess this way podcast just seems normal now, right? So <laughs> everybody's doing business. <laughs> it's
0: all online now in the planes of Zoom or Skype or whatever people use.
1: You were just ahead of the time.
0: <laughs> yeah, we we've used this technology to record for a while. And yeah, I'm I'm excited for, for a deep dive into a topic that, you know, in those current times is emerging more and more. Like how do we invest? monetary funds into impact that helps our planet, our people, and kind of a purpose at large. And so maybe let's start with the word impact. And I know that the Harvard alumni impact is like an acronym. Let's just unpack that.
1: Sure, absolutely. So, and we actually put a lot of thought into this, the executive committee and I, and in launching. And for us, impact, it was really important that we have 12 grads or 11 grad schools and the college at Harvard. And impact to us is about bringing together all the different sectors that need to work together to achieve a better planet. So, impact is the I is impact investing, and you have metrics and measurement, public, private, and nonprofit, advocacy and social policy, climate. And sustainability and then tech for good and data for good so we managed to slip a couple other things in there because for example it's really important to us to have sustainability obviously and uh, impacts didn't work quite the same as impact so climate and sustainability is is our c um but but it's really important to us and we, we went back and forth on it a lot to make sure that we're really encompassing Um, that you can come from the Kennedy School, you can come from the Divinity School and talk about some of the ethics and some of the trade-offs. You can come from the business background or the legal background or economics. And you really need to have all of those things together in one big soup in order to solve these problems that are just so challenging um, that no one sector can solve it alone. And so so we want to honor that and also make sure that then that holds us internally accountable to have our programming um, very inclusive across all different types of answers.
0: Yeah, that's, that's really insightful. And I think it makes sense to also, you know, classify what impact really means because impact is now being thrown around quite a bit. And unless we know exactly what we mean with it, it, it turns into this, yeah, into this like very vague, uh, buzzword. And so for me, this is really precise and let's maybe start with some of the projects you you've been involved with lately or just some of the learnings of what you you know is at the top of your mind and top of your heart to to share about what's happening in the impact investing space what's maybe the problems that are being faced that that you can see across multiple projects and just where's your like the insights you have that others don't have
1: well okay so on that i think one of the things um Putting aside, because this podcast will live on beyond this week, um, putting aside the fact that we have bottomed out oil and nobody knows what that means. Like It's a crazy time. You have um, people in impact investing who are out of fossil fuels are like, ha, see? But honestly, if they're investing in renewables, that just made them completely uncompetitive also. So putting aside the fact that we have no idea... On it from an investment perspective what just happened and when it will recover to what we thought was normal two weeks ago or, or a month ago yeah. um, one of the things that that i feel very strongly about and actually yesterday harvard my my one of my alma maters um just put out their climate commitment the president of harvard university larry bachow just said that Harvard is going to take a a zero, a a carbon neutral pledge to achieve that by 2050 in the entirety of its endowment. And what I liked about it is it went a different direction than uh, Fossil Free, Harvard, Divest Harvard, which is the part of the whole students at Fossil Free, Divest, fill in the blank university um, that's going on all over the country. to me, that's a very limited lens because if you go for divestment, then you are abdicating your, and especially if you're trying to get a big pension plan or a Harvard University endowment, a massive, a a, a shareholder that actually has say at the table to leave the table, if they sell their shares, then nobody who cares about the environment and planet stewardship is buying up massive amounts of shares of fossil fuel companies right now, right? So if you sell your shares, you're likely selling your shares to someone who doesn't care. And then I guarantee you that everyone in that room is cheering that you're no longer at the table and they can go run roughshod over like lobbying to, to, you know, more leniency in environmental laws Mm -hmm. and, and walking back anything that they had committed to and not putting their climate footprint online and not investing their profits toward renewable energy. Whereas if you're there at the table and you work with others at the table, to me, one of the most exciting things that happened this year in January, the start of this year before the world went a little crazy, was BlackRock's pivot, right? And it was BlackRock's evolution, really. It was a three-year pivot. But uh, Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, a couple years ago uh, said a sense of purpose was his his letter to CEOs in January uh, 2018 and talked about purpose and stakeholders having primacy equal to shareholders. And this was like, mind-blowing for people at the time and a lot of people wrote it off as just uh window dressing and greenwashing. and he really doubled down. first of all he didn't realize it would get so much press but when it did instead of backing off he doubled down and then the next year when he talked about purpose in his letter to ceos in january he used the word purpose 21 times he used the word stakeholder more than twice as much as the word shareholder and this year in january his letter was called a reshaping of finance and he said from now on, he, they, BlackRock, as the largest single investor in most Fortune 1000 companies, um, are going to make each company turn in their SASB, their accounting reporting on sustainable accounting, and their carbon footprint each year. And if they don't, and if they don't make progress toward a 1.5 degree max, um, toward, toward what the, the COP and the climate accords are asking for, if they don't make progress on that, he is going to actively work to oust their board or oust their management team or divest from the company. And that's like a real stake in the ground. And that also, what I loved about that, and I had actually been lecturing on that to um, investor groups and to registered investment advisors um, in, in January and February, right, right before I went into lockdown and I no longer travel to lecture anywhere, but was lecturing on that to this room full of a couple hundred CIOs of multi-billion dollar family offices and RIAs saying it doesn't matter if you care about impact. What I love about what BlackRock just did, and we can go into the reasons why they did it, which is kind of fascinating and not necessarily because in the beginning they meant to be stewards of the fossil fuel industry. But um, what I love about what they did is you don't have to care. The fact that they're starting to do that is going to reprice the market. And again, getting rid of the craziness of like the last week or two and when we get back to six months from now or nine months from now and it starts to recover, um, that hasn't changed. That came before COVID and that's going to stay. And that means that whoever you are, whatever side of invest divest you're on. But to me, I'm like, thank God that they stayed invested because if they divested like Trillium, who I love and adore and am a massive fan of Matt Patsky, they do a lot of shareholder engagement campaigns around Around the social, the the S side of ESG, and um, around LGBT rights and other things, but somehow on the on the invest divest side, as much as they have an amazing track record, record and often lead with Calvert and Calpers and others, watch away from the table. And the same with Rockefeller Brothers, and now the same with so many uh, college endowments. But BlackRock staying at the table and those others that joined with them. And as soon as they did that, as soon as they started saying, we're voting our proxies, you know what? That gave the umbrella, that gave the cover for Vanguard and State Street to switch in the same year. And that's massive. So it went from a 38% shareholder block. I want to say it was 2017. I might be getting off by a year here. But that uh, was only a 38% shareholder block that voted to um, force out the chairman and at Exxon and put their climate footprint on their website and their um, their climate risk in their annual report. And it was a 41% block at Chevron the next week in May. And then um, for a variety of things that happened, which actually Trillium oddly was, was somewhat behind in a, in a different shareholder proxy thing on LGBT rights that, that BlackRock didn't vote on. And it didn't vote on that shareholder proxy. It actually kind of blocked it by not voting for it. Um, Trillium called them out for not voting on the LGBT rights one. And they had an internal meeting and again, getting pressure, they've been hiring all of these millennials for more than a decade now saying, you know, we care and we're good stewards and we have more than a trillion dollars of our seven trillion that's aligned with impact. And they're trying to be middle management and it wasn't sitting well for them. And so they had this pivot in 2018 and then they they pivoted on their vote. And when they pivoted and that led Vanguard and State Street to pivot, it went from a 38% vote to 62% in one year. Wow. And that's when I started celebrating, like if they had all left the table, what the the best I want to, end on this part, I just want to end with this one thought. When when Trump got elected, and forgetting politics aside, when Trump got elected, he chose to back out of the climate courts, right? As part of his campaign and as part of what he followed through on. And what's amazing is because of that vote, and that similar vote at Occidental and Chevron and everywhere else, because of that vote at Exxon, what did Exxon do? Exxon said, nope, we're still in. Can you imagine two years ago, any time before, I mean any time before 2016, where Exxon would have been like, oh, well, even if the president says we're out of the climate accords, so I want to double down and stay in it. Like that's crazy. And that's why that happened, because there were shareholder activists who stayed there, who kept in their portfolio, and who kept the feet to the fire on making them move toward being better stewards. So to me, that's a, a much more exciting place to be.
0: That's beautiful. And I am really grateful for your, like, like in-depth and elaborate um, to the point explanation of this, because what we're really witnessing is that taking that stance within the industry of investment or the industry of oil or like the politics around it and not divesting or turning away from it is actually one of the most important things to do within that sector and that part of the economy, right so we're representing uh human rights and representing rights of the planet with knowing that only by pointing forwards into this direction, which you and I called uh, before we hit record like the direction of the green planet blue planet right so like making earth an earth ship that is that is holistic again it's It's really important to make this old way of operating obsolete and so Let's dive in a little deeper because I know that, you know, BlackRock, I was in Davos at the time when that happened, right around then. And uh, Mark Benioff, actually, the uh, owner of Salesforce and Time Magazine and so forth, also made a very similar statement that capitalism as we know it is dead. And so now that we're going through this COVID time, it's almost like, of course, let's acknowledge pain and fear and lockdown that we're all experiencing and, and, and death, you know, but there is a huge opportunity to double down on this understanding that capitalism as we know it is changing and is it's kind of dying in itself
1: absolutely I pass this back to you because i know you're excited and there's lots
0: that you can share so
1: you it's just it's such exciting fascinating times and it and it takes all kinds and certainly it, it takes all the activists too and uh, in whatever, whether it's an environment or women's rights or minority rights, um, it, it takes activists to push the envelope as much as it takes the people that are there in the middle to to move it forward from the inside. But um, I like and with COVID, I don't know, it's been fascinating to see the breakdown of of our society of, of just like supply chains, like craziness of things that aren't working and and without going into who causes what. Um, it's more about what does this mean is going to change and have to change when we go afterwards to revisit it, hopefully not even from a politically charged way, but from a, there are thousands of tens of thousands of at least people who died who didn't necessarily have to, even once that first incident happened, and what can be changed, and, and um, in, even with that, so I came from Bain, and I, I always get frustrated when I see how people quote numbers, in ways that tell their story the way they want their story told. Mm-hmm. And I think that one thing that's gonna be fascinating at the end of all the COVID stuff is if we just look at the numbers of people that died with COVID in their in their system and count that as the only deaths from COVID or we recognize all the people that couldn't get a hospital bed, who had a stroke or a heart attack or were in a car accident or who have diabetes or, 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 or who are on dialysis, Who literally couldn't get treatment and died only because of COVID. And if we can have, hopefully we'll have some um, way smarter than me who know how to draw the line on on what was really who would have survived and who clearly like didn't just because of hospital capacity. Mm -hmm. But I would like to believe that at the end of the day, as we're unpacking this, we unpack it um, looking at, at very real numbers and looking at where the real failures were in how hospitals are set up and when the next pandemic happens, which we know it will. Um, Sadly, Um, everybody who knows, again, a lot more about this says it will. Um, How are we going to be better prepared? And what are we going to learn? And then, I mean, the, the one crazy thing on the silver lining side, though, is COVID, like it was the Earth fighting back, right? I mean, the Earth won. This is the least pollution Earth Day we've had in years. This is the cleanest water we've had in a lot of rivers in years. So oddly, the Earth won, and, and um, it'll be fascinating. And I'm hopeful. And I'm not. I wouldn't. I wouldn't bet the ranch. But I'm. I'm. I'm optimistic that we'll be able to get to something in between, something where it's healthier for the planet and for humans, where we where it doesn't tank economies, where we don't obviously what what's happening right now that made the Earth cleaner is not sustainable. We have to go back to actually having factories and actually driving and actually having boats and all those things. Um, But how do we do that better? And I'm excited to see, I think this also just ironically messed up every single climate projection ever, right?
0: I was just about to say that. I mean, now we're seeing how fast nature nature's intelligence and the earth are able to um, recover and actually like, the resilience of this intelligence that's inherent within nature, right? It's, it's much stronger than we maybe thought. And all these predictions are based on just like the, you know, the human imprint and the human impact, but but really like nature has a form of resilience and intelligence that this is kind of, you know, uh, my whole talk about all these topics is how can we step-by-step step bring our socioeconomic structures and, and at some point also our social political structures into a biomimicry with the intelligence that's inherent right because yeah. it would be kind of um i think it's a, it's quite ignorant to think that we as humans uh, are making the cosmological synchronicity of this whole like earth ship floating in space better by right. our minds limited logic right and so that's kind of where i come into that whole conversation I, I feel like it's it's very important to take all the problems very real and to honor the way we got here as a society because including fossil fuel and including plastic and, and, and the economy and even, even currencies that we could question and challenge. It's brought us to here, but at some point we have to see that it might not get us into the next century and the century after that.
1: Or the the way the way we're using it today certainly won't. Exactly. But if we envision it with the the limits of the knowledge that we have, it won't. And so what you know, what can we envision now that we've seen this like just there's so so much new knowledge right coming out on on climate resilience on on just all sorts of things on on and on the man-made stuff on the supply systems and on healthcare, and on just all the even the fact that in i i live in a very wealthy suburb in in southern connecticut and how many people in in towns near me didn't have laptops for their kids mm-hmm. Um, and like the, the next town over Norwalk, um, it turns out, I believe it's 57% of students were on um, some reduced price lunch. And that was regularly before a lot of their parents got laid off. So when you suddenly overnight flip a switch and everybody stays home from and has to homeschool, these parents didn't have money already for food, much less to get a computer, much less if they or if they have to now work from home in order to have whatever that hourly paycheck was. And they have two kids in school and a spouse, there's no, there's no four laptops. And so there's so much that we're that we're seeing now that we didn't realize was broke, was unequal, um, that it will be fascinating uh, to hopefully we'll be able to, now that the, the light's been shown on this, to really rebuild some things differently. Um, in a way that works, that works for the economy, that brings back everything faster. That's, you know, if it's if it's presented right, it's about being less of a drain on the economy by fixing some of these things that cause the inequities that actually then also caused education inequities that meant people couldn't get more and as functional in the economy and meant they actually needed uh, more of the welfare state. So how can we actually reverse some of this and make the investments up front to not have to make them later?
0: Let me ask a question in that context. Like, what do you Reckon, or what do you think it takes for humanity to learn from its past mistakes?
1: Ha. oh, I don't know. I mean, you look at you look at Holocaust deniers in Germany. I mean, when human- humanity writ large, on on average, I would like to believe we learn from our past mistakes, but uh, we are, and we are more driven by avoiding pain than by seeking pleasure, right? Hmm psychology 101 yeah. so to the extent that we actually directly feel it and know the pain we will learn from that mistake but if we just see it on tv it's easy to be like if oh, they were making it up especially now in the age of everybody on every side questioning the media and rightly sometimes questioning what the media says um there was a on the local news channel um two weeks ago last week the, their expert their medical expert no joke, their Friday, like 5 p.m. show said, uh, first of all, that it only is affecting elderly. And so everybody needs to stay home. And it was the week after a six week old baby died of COVID in Hartford. And the more that we keep saying it only affects elderly, the more that kids 20 somethings and younger are genuinely not gonna care and not gonna feel the pain of this. The pain that they feel is like, why did this make you know, society stop? And that's not yeah. fair that I can't see my friends. That's the pain that they feel. That's the wrong lesson to take out of this and but what was even better she ended with and you know and as soon as people get it we need this herd uh this herd immunity because once you once you get it you're immune for two years and i'm like fauci doesn't even know that so where would you get that information i i love that you know that he should hire you you know and this was a news station that's not politicized it's not left or right it's the local news and um just completely devoid of fact though Mm Um, So, yeah, I don't know. Um, I think that one of the things that will have to come out of this and out of the political environment that that led into this is we need to figure out a way to, like Wikipedia, have better, neutral, trusted sources, and I I don't know how we evolved that, but I think it's getting to a point where a lot of people realize we need to do that for the planet, as well as for our own health, for, for a lot of different things. I mean, climate deniers. How is that that you can, you know, depending who your friends are on Facebook, you can get things that tell you that that's the truth when you're trying to do or on Google. And I think people don't realize uh, how Google algorithms work. And I can think that I'm going there because I genuinely want to understand. And if you believe one side of an issue and let's say like in the pro-life, pro-choice, one of us believes one, one believes the other thing. We go Google, we get fed completely different articles when we each think we're just getting the unbiased truth. And that's not... um, that's not a place that any of us are going to be able to come to resolution from. And so I think that one of the things hopefully that will come out of a, the political environment we're currently in and be the COVID hoaxes, hoaxes like telling people that the way that you can uh, make yourself immune is gargling rubbing alcohol. Like how do you know how many people have died from Clorox and rubbing alcohol during that strain COVID because they read some email or some, news site that looked like it was genuine science and we're genuinely trying to be the right thing so i think that that's something that's going to have to come out of this somehow and that will as a as a knock on positive impact be beneficial to the planet because there's so much out there that that doesn't really tell the truth about um trade-offs of pollution and things it's
0: like that. It's the very very deep topic right they like also the topic of media literacy and, and what it means to be literate in digesting the media and how we've created information silos, as you just described them. Well,
1: and even really smart people. I mean, I look at some of my feeds of very college educated people who are hugely successful. And some of the stuff they put forward, like everyone needs to know this and do this right away. And you're like, dude, that's that's, that's actually like, you can go and look online at the things that say, what's a hoax, and it's listed.
0: <laughs> I think one of the, the personal learnings I've, I've made about this, there was uh, a few WhatsApp groups I'm part of where despite the initial like oh this is a hoax or hey this is the truth there were some really healthy conversations about you know people posting things like i don't know if this is true or not but i've seen this can the group intelligence of this whatsapp group verify this and then some people would help unpack and sometimes the person was right and sometimes the person was wrong but it wasn't really about that anymore it was about the process of how we can together Uh, not invest the time in being like, oh, I'm right and you're wrong and this is bullshit and this isn't, but actually understanding that we need each other to verify things and we we don't need to just instantly follow everything we see.
1: Absolutely. And the one one glitchy um, glitchy thing in that is uh, if you're in a big group and they're all trying to figure it out, it's going to actually boost that story on the algorithm. (laughs) Right. Ironically, which then means more people will be like, oh my gosh, this must be true and it will spread further while people are debunking it. So there's there's just there's some stuff that I I, I realize Google and and Facebook are aware of. Um, they haven't quite figured it out yet, and I think sometimes they're not sure that it serves them to figure it out, um, which is unfortunate. So hopefully we'll we'll move past that.
0: That's a topic in and of itself. There's a yeah. lot of evolution to be had in the algorithms and the platforms. But I want to circle back to a word you mentioned a few minutes ago, which is trust. And so I want to I want to just bring that into a personal context. So for you. What is required to experience trust?
1: Fascinating. Um, For the most part, I think I'm a pretty trusting person, so I give people the benefit of the doubt, unless um, unless I've heard something. Or I mean, and and I obviously it depends. It's kind of a a broad, general topic. Uh, But as far as new people or new business opportunities, whatever it is, I'll do the basic Google search and the basic LinkedIn. You know, if it seems like a line, then I am mostly give people the benefit the doubt, but also um, having been burned as most people have by the time they reach adulthood, I'm also much quicker to recognize flags mm-hmm. and to then um, be much more reticent, like then it takes a while to rebuild up trust. It's one thing to be granted trust, but once there's a flag there, it, it takes a lot to rebuild that trust if it's possible
0: yeah thank you for your answer i think it is as you said it's a very broad topic and a very uh difficult topic to unpack but that's why we need to ask these questions to get better and better at the sense making of what it takes on the individual cosmos and then in the collective field and then about media and news and so forth i want to ask you also very specifically around what i call the triple bottom line people planet profit right and so we've kind of started there around impact investing and so um Maybe to simplify the question, what do you think is, is necessary in this evolution that we're going through in, in some of these crises we're facing to include a notion of people and planet into our, our profit environment? So to include people and planet yeah. into more of the economy and more of the political um, yeah, just agenda yeah. or, 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 or direction. People-
1: Including so people, planet, profit is uh, is ESG, right? So planet is the E in ESG is environment. People is the S is social, uh, so labor and safety and diversity and all those things. And then profit obviously is the is the G side, which people don't necessarily think about. But good governance is what gets you long-term profit. Um, and so it's slightly uh, different when people are talking about it, they often are talking about it from coming from a different place, it's the same thing. And in ESG, it's been proven, if you look, if right now listeners, watchers, whatever it is, go to MSCI, MSCI is one of the, um, it's a a grouping of an index of of stocks of companies. And if you go to the MSCI index, the regular generic one versus MSCI ESG index, and you look at the 10 year, the 10-year outperforms, the 10-year ESG outperforms the 10-year non-ESG. And in S&P, the S&P impact index, ESG index, outperforms the S&P. And we're seeing that even now, even during COVID, but it was also true a year ago. And so what we're seeing is that by caring about the governance side of profits and by caring about social there's lots on if you look at anything on gender lens investing a lot of these gender lens funds are outperforming them they're barely outperforming but they're outperforming they're not underperforming um because you need to have a diversity opinion to have better governance. So even though it's the S, it's the social, it's the diversity, it's actually a governance thing too. And so you're seeing more and more investors that as they realize, as they're starting to be, ESG has been around long enough now that there's finally track records and investors are noticing that and more investors are calling for um, uh, mandatory women on boards and not just one token person, but women and minorities and and not to ever misunderstand that and think that means that an all-woman board would be better that would be just as bad as an all-male board right that would also have no diversity of thought it's about
0: the diversity and the different angles of how we yeah. solve and the problem yeah
1: and the same with the planet i mean again we're we we see that all the time you can only cut down what an example i love one of the case studies so i i, I lecture on scaling what i call scaling smart smart impact so for me smart they came up with this, I like acronyms clearly. So SMART is systems mindset account for risks and threats. And it's a 10 question heuristic framework that I lecture on. And in it, one of the things I talk about is um, if I, and, and all of it's about if I reach success, if my business model is successful, what does that break? I'm not worried about if your business model isn't successful, obviously you should fix it. Um, but if your business model is successful and you reach true scale, what can that break? And how can you see that up front? before you break it, what questions can you ask? So you can see it and then you can adjust your model. And a really good example of like, if, you know, if I reach true scale, what resources, won't, won't where won't there be enough resources for me to, to reach true scale, right? Like what will I break on resources? And a great company that went through this on their own, clearly having nothing to do with me, um, was IKEA, who a few years back said, okay, do you realize they're the number one user of commercial grade wood in the world? which kind of blew my mind. I had to Google that, I had to Google that because I'm like, that can't be true, but it is. And so they, in looking at their growth and what did they wanna do in 10 years and where they're gonna be and how they're gonna grow more, they realized there's not enough wood, right? Unless they plan on cutting down all the rainforests in the world, which was not their goal. And so then they started only buying from sustainable rainforests, or sorry, from sustainable forests, saying we need to make sure that we're, we're growing at the same rate as they're cutting. And then they realized they couldn't trust all the certifications because they started monitoring them. So then they started buying forests. And then and then as a happy accident, because of that, they now own their vertical. So that commodity that is the most important thing in their, in their product, in their sales, in their whole reason for being, they actually control the cost and the quality of. And so you see that even, and, and there's many more examples like that, but I love the IKEA example of this like, Planet and profit are very closely linked. If you're not just looking at today and tomorrow, but you actually still want to be around in ten years,
0: it's a very powerful example, Tammy. And i i wanna I wanna dig into that from another angle. So you mentioned Google a few times and like how yes. we come to Google things, and obviously there's a monopoly being held. Love
1: hate relationships.
0: <laughs> yeah, like, like so many of us, right? And then like we mentioned Facebook, as well. not love hate, conflicted. And so. Ikea in a different way of looking at it is also um, has a monopoly and um, you know, it's like a very strong, very big player in that sense. And so let's say they made a really positive example there. And I love this example, but is there also a place for just challenging the way we have this ultra wealth and ultra power in some companies? So um, I'll give my example where sometimes go in my mind where it's like, look, when Facebook reached, 10 million people, it was a very successful experiment. When Facebook reached 100 million people, it was an extremely successful experiment. But once it reached a billion people, for me, it seems almost silly. I'm going to use very basic words here almost silly that we just accept that it's a privately run company that influences more people than any country on earth. Right really like there is a social responsibility that picks up that we're now seeing. And we're now seeing Facebook is a good example that and Google too, that doesn't always uh, take its responsibility um, from a collective public perspective, but very often from the private, but we're a company, we're building something and oh, we're experimenting. And it's, I mean, that's really fine. And it's really fair when you've made this successful environment. Uh, But then at the same time, I feel like,
1: well, it's why we have monopoly and antitrust laws. So the question is, why aren't they being applied properly?
0: Fair is, enough. Let's go there. Right.
1: So if that's the case, which it does appear clearly to be the case, um, if that is the case, then why aren't the laws being applied properly? And so I think that that's where there there, there is something in place for that. There has been for for decades. So um, so it's how do we go back and visit the rule of law and visit. Um, Again, and it's it's clearly not just a US thing. It's, uh, and we're seeing every country is not able to cope with COVID, right? So forget wh- whatever's going on politically in this country, whatever's gone on, this is not the issue. It's not that every other country has thrived and we have not. Um, the same thing with a lot of other things going on as far as the Facebooks of the world and other things. Um, we need, we as citizens, as humans on this planet need to have... Government, the reason that we have government, whatever form it takes, is partly to take care of, to protect its citizens, to be that safety net, to be that protector. And I think in so many different instances, in so many different iterations of types of governments, they've fallen short. And COVID has just like shown the spotlight on that and it doesn't matter if it's an oligarchy or a dictatorship or a democracy or socialism, we've all fallen short in various different ways. Um, And on the same time, I think with companies, same thing. And you see it where things get, they get privatized and stay around, you look at Venezuela, you look at countries that where that government flipped from taking care of things to deciding that things were too big so they just own them and then like run roughshod over their citizens. And uh, so I don't know, I, th- I think it's, it's, it's about a larger concept that to me has more to do with government and rule of law than it does to do with the companies themselves. Because to your point, companies are supposed to grow and grow their profits and grow them in a way that's responsible. Because again, uh, one of the examples that I love giving in this, this course that I run uh, is I try and make it really clear that it's not just about social entrepreneurship or even about corporate social programs currently. Impact investing, the term um, Rockefeller Foundation claims to have coined in 2007. But in fact, the concept has been around the Lutherans have been doing it for like over a century, right? So what I love in my course, one of my examples is on resources actually also is like, if I take away this resource, then what might people do if they don't use my product? Right? And so my example is Nestle's. And I don't know if you know the example I'm about to go with, but it's 1974, which is why I love this example. Like this stuff happened long before there was internet and long before there was impact investing. Nelson's got this brilliant idea of going and expanding to Africa with their baby formula. And what they did is they went around and for every new mom, they gave her one month free supply. Because what happens when you do that? When you do that, a woman's milk dries up. And these women couldn't afford the formula. And they even had some of their salespeople dress up as if they were nurses. To, so talk about like fake media influencers, all that, all that was happening in the '70s. So you had all these women who then suddenly couldn't afford the formula, and their milk dried up, and they have their babies starving. So they're going in if they can get any formula, they're cutting it with dirty, they're cutting it with a lot of water, and oftenly, often with dirty water, right? They they often only have access to polluted water. So what happened? Babies died. So you would think after ten thousand babies died, they would notice and do something about this, right? But they're off in Switzerland. I mean, clearly they have people on the ground, but they do not notice at 10,000. They do, I don't know if they notice, they do not stop. So you would think certainly by the first 100,000 babies that died in, a, in under a year, they would notice. But no, do you know how many babies died in that year? One million. They are credited with one million babies dying because of that in a year. And, but what did that cause? That caused a global boycott, not just US, a global boycott. It hit their bottom line. And if you go and just Google the Google, um, Nestle's scandal, Nestle's formula, Nestle's Africa, any two to three words, you will find articles as recently as last year. So it hurt their brand for more than four decades. And that was again, before we had this concept of impact investing, it was before we had social media. And what I love about that example is you didn't have to care about impact, you had to have Nestle's in your portfolio to have it impact your bottom line. And imagine now, imagine if you were a company that did that now, right? And so to I me, mean, you see Enron, you see companies that are um, for Volkswagen, awesomely, they seem to have recovered from their fraud, but, um, but their fraud wasn't kill. it was killing planet, not people. So I guess that's a more recoverable, um, I don't know, but, which we could unpack some other, some other, right?
0: Not directly related, right? Planet and people, like, I mean, we're- Well, it wasn't killing them
1: instantaneously. It would take longer for the people to die from that fraud. Mm -hmm. But but the Nestle's example, going back to that, like you see where um, the planet, people, profit, that profit side, it actually doesn't work if you don't have some degree of stewardship of planet and people. And if you let that go too far out, you get taken out. You get taken down. It certainly costs you for whether it's a year or, or years or decades. And I believe that like if any company tried to do that today, they would be out.
0: Oh, yeah, thanks for bringing up these like, are examples. I actually just yeah. instantly Googled it just to have it open for later and go deeper. There you go, i yeah. vaguely familiar with some of the shady operations that, that Nestle came up with, which I think this is not the only one. But, one but then one. you
1: have, um, on the other hand, not, not on a resource, uh, but on a resource protection, actually. So not related to one of these, these examples that I give of, of broken systems, but dolphin-safe tuna, which I love as far as what consumer action can do and that was again before internet before social media and just the the public service campaign of like these poor dolphins are getting caught in these nets and you need to spend the 20 cents more on a can of tuna to make sure it says dolphin safe on a dollar 50 can of tuna so imagine what percent you're spending on it right and people did it and it changed the industry and and if we do that uh going back to whether it's fossil fuels or, or or anything else as far as anything that's hurting the planet, um, if we would have um, consumers who care, spend more time boycotting in their own wallet, not out there marching and demanding divestment, but then going and flying on a plane to somewhere that they could have driven or taken, the sorry, not even driven, <laughs> or driving in their, in their non-electric vehicle instead of taking a bus or a train or an EV, um, but instead make those procurement changes company profit, uh, companies follow profit. If consumers change what they purchase, that changes where the profit is. So um, one of the campaigns that I was about to launch in the fall that has now been postponed because I'm (laughs) trying to get my head around if we will be outside in the fall and what's going to happen with this like potentially like on and off lockdown world, but um, is again clearly with my frustration with the divest movement on the on the against the exon of the world but instead i want to see people divest their wallet right so use that use that profit incentive to get companies to change and be better stewards because that's where the customers are and one thing that frustrates me is all the packaging which all of us have now seen how much packaging there is because i have a stack in my dining room like A crazy stack, which is kind of unavoidable right now. But when you were going to the store back in the day, when you could go to stores and buy things, the amount of packaging is crazy. Like Costco, where you have the big plastic thing with a cardboard thing in it, with a plastic bottle in it, with this much vitamins, where it literally could have been a pack like this yeah so one of the things that that i'm launching it with a bunch of amazing advisors um although i think to be postponed to, to 2021 um but is a leave the packaging behind week so to do a one week with a bunch of social uh social media influencers that we have involved and some ethical fashion people and some impact investor types to um to lead this one week of blitz campaign of getting everyone to when they go shopping at costco or macy's or wherever they're going, CVS, to take the packaging and just leave it at the register, to leave this awesome stack there, to send a signal to us as consumers to start to use our consumer power in a different way. And I think that that on the planet profit people, when we as people start leading and stop expecting companies to lead, we'll see companies follow us.
0: Yeah, it's a beautiful full circle because we kind of started with the responsibility that companies and company leaders have because it's it's a very real responsibility. But then also we as people have that same responsibility in every micro interaction. I have one more question for you, Tammy, that is around earth vision. And so I don't know if I said that to you before, but that's kind of what started this podcast is this understanding of what dream for the earth slumbers in every person's heart. And so I want to context it with, the notion of seven generations. So your dream for this planet, if you were to zoom out on the timeline, way beyond our individual lifetime, but maybe like seven generations into the future, which is roughly around 200 years.
1: All right.
0: I'm not looking for an accurate prediction or anything. Just like, what's your dream? What's alive there?
1: Okay. Prediction versus dream are two probably different things, but I like that my my dream could be my prediction. That sounds very optimistic and I like it. Um, It's that... We have, uh, well, first of all, we start having, as far as having children, people decide to have like an amount of children they can support and that the earth can support, that there aren't families having eight or 10 kids, which I get back in the day when a bunch of them would die and you needed people to work the farm and all um, that. So I think where we're population is in check in a in a way because it's because we choose, not because some horrible plague comes and kills a ton of people um, and where where we don't have the gaps anymore where where we figure out ways to understand people's trains also I think a lot of stuff's going to be run by AI and robots right so the question is what will people be doing will we be able to go back to doing philosophy and the arts and where will that play a role and and um, I would like to believe that certainly in the optimistic place that that yeah that that people are able to Pursue. I just came from, I spent 12 days in December, December 20th to January 2nd at Kipasana, which is like a, a light version of Vipassana for people who want to Google and do not know. I had never done more than half an hour of meditation in like a month or probably maybe like three half hours in a year. And it's 12 days, complete silence. Uh, Five hours of meditation and four hours of yin yoga every day and no talking at all the whole time and they lock your phone and your computer in their office and you have no access to anything. Um, But to really go that deep and to be able to be connected to the earth and to whatever energy and to wherever you go and it's not, there's no religious overtones, there's none of them telling you what you need to find when you kind of go in, They'll, they'll walk you through visualizations just get to that calm place. And then everybody in the room, you have people from different religions and different walks of life and everyone came to their own interpretation of what it meant to them, kind of like when people die and and come back and you hear each of them has seen the light and they always see it through their own lens of their religion. But I think that 200 years out, we'll have a lot more time to be a lot more reflective and a lot more about connectivity to each other and recognizing the sameness in the other and feeling a sense of stewardship for each of us um, as as humans and as as other beings, as other sentient beings here. Um, I think, I mean, by then, I think we'll also have discovered, if we don't discover other life somewhere else, that life will come down and discover us. So it'll be more interesting. I don't know that we'll be kind of like the Galaxy Cafe in and, and any of those... Uh, Different, I'm going to say the wrong movie, so I won't even say which one. <laughs> but, um, you know, any one of those Star Wars, Star Trek type of things. I guess that's Star Wars. I don't know that we'll be quite there. Um, probably not. But 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 somewhere where there's certainly a, a confluence of different AIs and, and robots and people um, all mixing it up together. And then on the people side, really being able to go and explore whatever source energy is for them, whether it's God or source or universal, whatever you want to call it. Um, but people will be much more tapped into how to use their power for good and and have a more common understanding of what's in that vast back basket of good. So everyone will have their own definition, but within something that's more kind of commonly understood as as helpful to self and helpful to the planet i'm hopeful for that
0: beautiful thank you so much for that answer i love hearing all the different answers to this question because it's it's a question where obviously there is no right answer and so it's it's fun to explain.
1: There is, we just don't know which one it is <laughs> fair enough
0: <laughs> we'll have to be around in 200 years exactly Thank you so much for your time, for your insights. to uh, you. Link out how uh, people can follow your work, and I'm I'm really happy to to feature this on the
1: podcast. It was so much fun. I look forward to listening to even more as we as you now have so much more time to podcast. <laughs> so this was great. Happy Earth Day.
0: Happy Earth Day. We're recording this on Earth Day. Exactly.
1: exactly. <laughs> Bye. that's that, another episode of Green Planet, Blue Planet
0: podcast. I hope you truly enjoyed this one and received some insights, knowledge and a form of learning that you can directly apply to your life, into your relationships or maybe even into your business and the way you show up for the world. Because this is a movement and we're all part of it and we're in this together. We're here to create a world of a triple bottom line where you win, I win and the entire planet wins. We're raising consciousness together, and you know that. That's why you're listening. That's why I love you. So make sure to share the love. Hit subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Invite a friend to listen to Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast. And if you have an idea who else you'd like me to interview, make sure you reach out and send me a suggestion. Definitely check out greenplanet-blueplanet.com, the website to the podcast. I've created a lot of different offers for you, free content, free meditations for you to amplify your connection to self, the state of social impact in the world, and for you to connect and listen to who you could support of the people that I actually interview because their missions are ongoing and a lot of them need more collaboration. And after more than 100 episodes now, with some of the world's leading social impact experts, I have synthesized my most inspired learnings and takeaways to create coaching and mentorship programs for you and the people around you. Let me share with you about planetary purpose coaching and mentorship experiences. If you're in a space in your life where you're ready to level up, to amplify who you are, what's coming through you and what you're doing to give your gift to the world, then I would love to hear from you. And I'd love for you to apply to one of my private mentorships or group mentorships. Last but not least, there's a few different group experiences I host, both in person and online. All of them are quantum learning environments, and I'm happy to tell you more. So simply inform yourself and stay connected because whatever resonates with you, I'm here to support you and bring out more purpose into the world. And with that being said, wherever you are in the world, make sure to be you, show up all the way, be all in. Connect with someone today, make them smile, have yourself a stellar day. Lots of love to you and until soon.